0: this morning. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 8 verse 6 and there should be an insert in your bulletin. Uh, we, we couldn't fit all this in the bulletin so we, put, we, we have an insert where you can follow it. If there's not an insert in your bulletin, um, find someone who has an insert in their bulletin and start developing a new relationship with that new insert friend but we're in uh, Revelation chapter 8 beginning in verse 6 before Dana and I moved here uh, we, we, uh, our family lived in Nashville there's a really cool place in Nashville some of you would know about it in fact sometimes they, they do uh, shows on it on TV shows from it it's called the Bluebird Cafe and a really small venue it's, it's, it's just in, in a strip mall you wouldn't think it's a place that would be have much Nashville charm to it but uh, but it's a very small venue. Some of the most famous country singers, folk singers, have played there. And one of the, one of the things that's the appeal is you're just right there with the, with the artist. One night, I went with a friend to see a, a singer, kind of a new folk singer. This would be sometime in the 90s. And uh, named John Gorka. And John Gorka played a few songs. And uh, in between that one and the next song, he said, You know, I, I wrote the songs from my most recent album, after a breakup of uh, a relationship of many years. So, um, so it's not exactly Mr. Smiley Face. And uh, we laughed, actually, when he, when he said that. But um, unlike, unlike the congregation just now. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, that, that memory came back to me because, you know, sometimes you just need to say these things on the front end. This is a text that is not a Smiley Face text. And uh, I, I joked about at the beginning when I told people I was preaching through Revelation, you know, or, or someone would ask me, What are you preaching on? I'm preaching on Revelation, and they'd say, Uh oh. I think it's because of texts like this, because this is a text, um, and I'm not being light, flippant, but it is. It's, it's a text with blood and fire and wrath, and there's a bottomless pit, or your translation might say, um, The Abyss. It's just, it's the kind of thing you think about, about what is weird about Revelation. This is the longest passage I've ever read at Downtown Prez. And uh, not that anyone's asking for it, but no, no apology. B- by the way, I'm, I'm going to try not to preach the longest sermon I've ever preached at Downtown Prez. But, but the reason I'm willing to do this is a couple of things. Number one, the Apostle Paul, when he was instructing Timothy, his spiritual son, young pastor... One of his instructions for him as a pastor was devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And there's Scripture all through our service, but sometimes it's good to hear big chunks of it. So we're going to hear a big chunk. And it's kind of of a piece, so we need to hear it all together. The other thing, though, is that, you know, remember that at the beginning of Revelation it said there is a blessing. There's a blessing for reading this book and hearing it together. And we want to take that seriously. So we're going to hear a good bit of this book together this morning. So with that said, beginning in Revelation chapter 8 verse 6, one thing to note so that this text makes sense. In an earlier passage, Christians, followers of the Lamb, have had a a, a seal placed on them. Some kind of visible demarcation of who are the people of God and who isn't. So keep that in mind. The people of God have been sealed by God. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, "...as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace." And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple, There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you now enable and engage our imaginations? And, Father, you've made us to... ones who think and feel and act. We want to think as we hear your word. We want to um, leave here and respond with wills as you want us to. But but we need to imagine and feel. And we cannot do that unless you help us. So help us. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is quite a passage. And it's become um, sort of a go-to methodology for us at times when we're confronted with certain kinds of passages to kind of go back to square one. Here's square one. And I, and I hope this will help us with this long passage. And I hope it will help us just even as a church in how we interact individually with the, with the Scriptures. And it's this. For any passage, there are two great questions that we can be asking to help us not just look at it as info, um, data, or even just to, you know, to show me how to live for the day, but really to see how is this pointing me to Jesus Christ. And here's the two questions. What does this passage show us about ourselves who need redeeming, who, who need cleansing and forgiving, redemption? What does this passage show us about God who does the redeeming? And I want to use those two questions really As, as the points of the sermon this morning Alright So what does this passage show us about ourselves That need the redeeming What does the passage show us about God Who does the redeeming Alright first about ourselves A couple of things First off Excuse me We love what hurts us We love what hurts us and the second thing is that catastrophe in and of itself will not change us. And I want to be careful that we understand each other. Remember, as we're talking about the people who are the recipients of um, the actions that are unleashed when these trumpets are sounded, we're talking about those who do not believe in the Lamb of God, but we would call non-Christians. We're not talking about humanity in general. But we are talking about what is the natural condition of any human being. And as we're looking at this text, as vivid as it is, keep in mind how the Apostle Paul describes any person, any human being in their natural condition, that the way we show up is that we are naturally children of wrath. That until God intervenes and does something supernatural that we are people who are naturally deserving of wrath. Okay, here's two ways you're kind of seeing that manifest itself. We love what hurts us. Catastrophe doesn't naturally change us. All right, now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush because of the size of the passage, but look in chapter 9, starting in verse 3. I'm not, I'm not going to reread tons and tons, but there's this, there's this vivid image after the fifth trumpet is sounded. There's this this shaft of a bottomless pit, of of an abyss. The shaft is opened, and this furnace-like smoke comes out, and then something comes out of the smoke. Look in verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass. You got that part. Now go to verse 7. In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold... Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Tails and stings like scorpions. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, Not not to insult our intelligence, but let me state the obvious. The original recipients and hearers of Revelation are pre-television, pre-movie. They're even... Pre-printed book, uh, at least mass printing, and so imaginations were a lot more alive. When you heard a description of something, your imagination knew how to take, kind of take the basic description and run with it. Now picture what you would form in your mind when you heard a description of a locust—a locust that's like a war horse with a human face and women's hair and a scorpion's tail. And lion's teeth. I mean, it's supposed to be freaky. It's supposed to be ugly and horrifying. So, you would think the response of people is, Woo, that's horrible. Yeah, I sure don't want to be near those. And it's a picture of the demonic tormenting those who don't know God. Tormenting them. Not killing them, tormenting them. So, people run away from them, right? Okay, look in verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols. Right. Now, th- this is weird and as otherworldly, as apocalyptic as the imagery is. This is a picture of our nature, of loving the very thing that's hurting me. I mean, I... I I've heard people frame it this way. Not all addiction is sin. But all sin is addiction. And it may be that you have never engaged in sorcery. I mean, you probably have not. That's not the big cultural sin in our circles. You may never have engaged in outright, you know, violent murder or or sorcery or whatever. But think about this. Wherever you are spiritually, have you ever been in a relationship... And I'm thinking here particularly of male-female relationship where being in that relationship, it was hurting your friendships. And it was hurting your relationship with your family. And it was hurting your capacity at work or in your studies. And you knew it was doing that. And you felt less like yourself in that relationship. And you would not let it go. That's a window into who we are that the thing that's attacking me and dehumanizing me, maybe even killing me, is the thing that I worship. Catastrophe in and of itself won't change any of us. Look again in verse 20 of uh, chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And this came up not long ago in a sermon, is that sometimes when there's a catastrophe, it might be a catastrophe at a high school or a college campus, or it might be a national gigantic geographic calamity, Christians will say things like, well, maybe this is going to wake some people up. A catastrophe in and of itself has no power to do that because of our hearts. Uh, There's a direct parallel to this in uh, in, uh, Revelation chapter 16 because the picture of judgment isn't seven trumpets. It's a picture of these seven bowls of wrath. These sets of seven are all through Revelation. And these bowls are being poured out on the enemies of God. And it says twice, this is in Revelation 16, even as the bowls are being poured out and these horrible things are happening, people will not repent. And did you notice what these actions are called, especially toward the end? They're called plagues. Does that remind you of anything? Can you think of any other time in the Bible where there are plagues that involve hailstones and blood and darkness? Of course, it's one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, the plagues which God used to release His people from slavery in Egypt. And think about this. There's there's an interesting little uh, episode, I think it's Exodus 10, where the servants of Pharaoh come to Pharaoh. And I can't believe they were this bold because Pharaoh did not have horizontal relationships with people but his servants come to him and say let these people go egypt has been ruined and guess when they say that they say that on the hills of the uh, of the plague of the locusts you know there's not much there there anymore let the people go and so pharaoh you think he's going to do it he gathers moses and aaron and says may the lord be with you if i ever let you go Sends them out of his presence. And you're going, What are you doing? But again, that is a window into our hearts is that the very sin that's dehumanizing me, the very sin that is making me not as much me, the very sin that is uh, adversely affecting my relationship or how my thoughts, my dealings with God or other people. I love it. I love it so much that horrible things can happen and I still love it. I can't... I don't have the power to make me change. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but by the way, this is... It's not the whole, but this is part of an... This is part of the answer of why does hell last forever? Because when someone who does not ask and cry out for the mercy of God and turn to Jesus Christ. When that person's life ends and they die, like any human being, their body stays here on the earth. The soul goes to its destination, which is hell. But at the resurrection, Christians and non-Christians, their bodies and their souls are reunited. And then as body and soul return to these destinations. And the thing about the person who is not in Christ, again, the person who has not said, I need mercy, Lamb of God, have mercy on me, that person continues to live a life of not repenting. And so that person continues to live a life that incurs the anger and judgment of God. That is part of the answer, why does it last forever? Because the person keeps incurring judgment as he or she rebels. it's a bleak picture of us. So what about God? I mean, if, that's, if, 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 if we just heard about we who need the redemption, what about God who, who does the redeeming? A couple of things. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of mercy. I and mean, the wrath is pretty obvious. And I guess the phrase I would use to describe how it's being presented here in these these plagues as the trumpets are blown is that it is measured but severe. It's it's measured in the sense that that the instructions keep coming uh, only burn a third of the trees, a third of the grass, only embitter a third of the rivers and springs, only kill one third of mankind. It's not passionate out of controlled, indiscriminate annihilation. It's measured. But it's it's terrible. And I, I just I went round and round about. I, I don't know how to unpack this. I thought maybe the best way to unpack it in a brief way is just is just to read the nouns and read the verbs. Hailstones. Now don't picture Trying to think how to say this. If you have a church background, this may resonate with you. Don't picture flannel board storms. And the flannel board, if you don't have a church background, some Sunday schools with children they would use these boards. It's a big panel with flannel and these little paper cutouts of figures, you know, these little pictures, you put them up on the flannel board, and the stack electricity puts it up there. Uh, this has been greatly used in the history of the church. And, and, uh, and, and they're great. But, like, don't picture a flannel board storm. You need, you need to, to picture a hailstorm that you've seen or a, a, a raging, out-of-control fire that you've seen. Hailstones, fire, blood, torment. 200 mi- uh, million troops of destroyers, 10,000 times 10,000 twice 200 million troops and when the 24 elders praise God and sort of, and sort of sum up what has happened they sum it up with the word wrath what about the verbs burned up died hurt killed destroying and quick question: Where, do you, as you mentally picture this, hopefully as your imagination is engaged, where where are you picturing it? Because I caught myself picturing it in New York City. And have you ever noticed how it just seems like, at least in all American movies, when like when something horrible falls out of the sky, it's always in Manhattan. You ever like? Remember there were all the meteor movies. There were like three meteor movies one year, you know, and they, and they all like show the big tidal wave coming into just lower Manhattan. Um, the Avengers, you know, when the kind of robot alien army, when they just unleashed. It's, of course, they start with New York City. Now, that might not be your mental picture, but the, my picture was of the New York skyline. And I thought, why am I doing that? When the original recipients of Revelation heard this, what would you picture? You would picture your town, and and in my flesh, I feel weird saying this. Can I say that? But our mental picture is to be not one third of Manhattan or one third of Beijing. It's to be one third of North Maine, one third of downtown. One-third of Augusta Road, one-third of Gower, one-third of West Greenville. That's the blood and the hailstones. That's the houses on fire. That's the troops going door to door of destruction. That's the picture. That when the exhortation is given in Scripture, flee from the wrath to come, that is not for the big evil city somewhere. That is for people where they are. And we're here. So what about uh, mercy? Here, think about this. Where'd it go? I lost my book. Did I take, not take it up here? Okay, I think I can read it. That's okay. At the end of uh, A Christmas Carol after Ebenezer Scrooge has seen the ghost of Jacob Marley and he's met the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present the scariest spirit is the last one it's the ghost of Christmas yet to come and you remember what he showed Scrooge? he showed him visions of things like a bed a a corpse on a bed covered with a sheet by itself Scrooge wants to know who that is and he shows a couple just sort of rejoicing at the death of a man to whom they owed a lot of money, rejoicing over his death and saying, we can go to bed with free hearts tonight. And he shows someone who's profited by going into this man's home and selling his things. And finally, the last vision is that the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he takes Scrooge to a cemetery And he points to a gravestone. Now picture, don't picture a vertical one. Picture what you'd probably find in an English churchyard, one on the ground. And Scrooge is scared to read the name. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come has his hand pointed out to the grave. Say, read it. He doesn't say it, but that's the message. The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. And when Ebenezer Scrooge reads the name Ebenezer Scrooge, he comes unglued. It's really kind of the first time in the story that you begin to pity him. No spirit. No, no. The finger was still there. And then Scrooge does something kind of unthinkable. He, he grabs the robe of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its robe. Hear me. I'm not the man I was. And then here's the question. Why show me this if I am past all hope? That's the question. For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. See that? Okay. Why show visions of the judgment if the people who are to be judged are beyond all hope? And here is the biblical mystery, and you can see them both in the book of Revelation is that those whom God is going to save, He has loved from before the foundation of the world, and their names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. You see that in Revelation. But you also see this, is that the offer of the gospel is genuine. That the free offer of the gospel, that Christ is for every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that's not a wink-wink, nudge-nudge offer. It's a real, genuine offer of rescue. Why show us the vision if we're beyond all hope? So let me say this to to a couple of of, of people in here. First, if, if you are not a Christian, if you know that about yourself or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks, you might have thought you were a Christian, And now you're beginning to wonder, have I really trusted in Jesus Christ or did I just kind of grow up with this stuff and have assumed things about myself? I want to say to you, on the one hand, because God is a God of wrath, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. Greenville will fall under it, as will all the earth. But the beautiful thing is that the book of Revelation is not about locusts or monsters or a dragon or a pit. It is about the lamb. Of all the metaphors to use about Jesus, why does it use the lamb? Because the lamb was the sacrifice to take away our sins. And did you catch what happened, what the vision was at the very end when the seventh trumpet is blasted? It says that the temple of God, not the earth temple, not the copy, the temple in heaven opens. And what does John see inside of it? The Ark of the Covenant. And what is the lid on the Ark of the Covenant called? It is the mercy seat. That this God who is holy, holy, holy has an object In his temple, which is a visual reminder that right there with the throne of God is mercy for sinners. You know, I I just, I found myself saying this the last week or two, maybe more than I ever have. It may be that this is your day to become a Christian. No one here can manipulate you into that. I, I cannot. But if God is at work in your heart to open your eyes to the fact that God is just and I'm the kind of person that deserves justice, look to the Lamb of God and do what the Bible calls repent. And that's simply saying, I'm turning to you. I'm turning away from my works, the ones I don't like and the ones I like. I'm turning to you and I'm saying, have mercy on me. You will be rescued from the wrath of God. If you are a Christian, two things and we're done. One is, if there's one thing that, that I know, it's that some of us are here this morning and we're on autopilot. Uh, Christianity has become boring. And we're sort of on a trajectory where there's some church and there's maybe prayer before meal. And I want, I want to end with this question. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if God's had mercy on you, with whom are you being priestly? Can we pray, even as we're coming off this text, can we pray, Lord, let me be priestly with a coworker. Let me be priestly with a neighbor? Not because I'm the high priest. I can't take away their sin. But you've put these people around me enable me in a smart way, in a loving way, in a a non-manipulative way to love someone and be involved in their life and go to bat for them on their knees, that you might even use me to bring that person to the high priest, the Lamb of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father. Make us priestly in our, uh, in our own homes, in an apartment complex. Make us priestly on our floor of our building at work. Make us priestly with extended family. Lord, not in a way that is uh, self-righteous or sarcastic or demeaning, but in a way that, that conveys if God can have mercy on us, if he can make us priests, he can make anyone priests, that you would use us and make us intentional about someone to help them toward the Lamb of God. Father, for that person who's sitting here who, who doesn't know if he or she is in Christ, in Christ, show your mercy And turn him or her to you, even this morning. Bring someone out of darkness and into your light. For your glory, not ours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.